Howdy. M. Bell Holland has designed a lot of unapologetically weird games, both with Holland Spiel and numerous other publishers. She's made train games, war games, dinosaur games, and many designs that defy easy categorization. We discuss her recent release, Islet, the upcoming Siege of Mantua, and much, much more. So uh, I wanted to start with um, Islet because in a hobby where there's a growing amount of plastic trash vying for a place on our game shelves and, you know, eventually in our drinking water, I thought Islet was a devilishly clever statement uh, with simple rules printed on the box, gameplay that tightens like a snare, no pun intended, and all in a really unassuming package. So would you mind describing it to those unfamiliar? Sure. So Islet is a game with shoelaces. Uh, there is a, a board with the holes in it, and it's a roll-and-move kind of game, because I like roll-and-move games. They get a bad rap. <laughs> Backgammon, one of the best games of all time and, and people people say oh roll a move no roll a move's great um, and you are threading these shoelaces through the board uh, with each roll you're getting two results that you have to resolve by counting that number of holes and threading the lace through it and you're basically trying it's a two player game and you're trying to create a situation where when your opponent rolls the dice, they'll be unable to complete their turn, and therefore you will win. Of course, because no player owns any of the laces, whenever you pass your opponent this this little trap you've made, if they get out of it, they are passing that trap back to you with a, with a little twist. So um, that's something I enjoy quite a bit in two-player games, is that kind of increasing brittleness and the the um the board kind of shrinking as it were uh, uh but and it makes it sound very tense and i i mean i suppose it is but it's also <laughs> very chill i think yeah and uh, absolutely it's kind of an asmr uh, quality to it uh so i really want to emphasize kind of the tactile nature of it um a sure. lot of where that game came from and I picked up a couple games at a thrift store that um, I haven't actually played these games. They're old games. I just picked them up at thrift stores because, um, and they were games that were designed with specific components in mind, where you can't really proxy it, um, or not effectively anyway. And I was kind of fascinated by that design space, which I think was very common say, throughout the 70s and 80s, and it's less common today, where the specific components are almost engineered to provide the experience. And I want to do something like that, but within uh, the means that we have available to us, and do something a little quirky. And shoelaces seem to do the trick. Um, another point of inspiration for the game um, is I took up uh, cross-stitch, uh, I'm very bad at it, but it's something that I found very, very soothing. And but you know, I, I definitely wanted to have kind of a kind of a folksy vibe. 
Yeah. You know? Um, so... I that's that's that and I'm 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 very proud of having done that and um people do seem to enjoy it and you know this is you know it's argue you could argue that it's like an abstract kind of game. I mean it's certainly yeah. not like a historical war game or a science fiction game or whatever. Um and we've done abstract games with the company uh three three times now and they generally haven't found an audience, so for this one to have done so was very gratifying. Um, and it made tying those shoelaces worth it, maybe. I, I don't know. It's When I said, I'm going to tie these shoelaces, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And like, I got, it. Were you and Mary doing all of those my, shoelace my, my, knots? My fingers got a little... <laughs> um, so... I did all the shoelace knots. Um, I had a friend who did some shoelace knots, but she tied knots in both ends. Which <laughs> oh, no. means I had to untie <laughs> all those knots. Oh, that's that's oh. very sad. You, you never want to see your friends do, do a little more effort, and then also an effort you need to undo on the other end. That's rough. No, um, no, it's, 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 <laughs> she felt real bad about it. That's <laughs> that's like you know you mentioned um, that kind of aesthetic of how there's an intentionality with what the components are in terms of how the game is designed with a lot of these um, you know the thrifted designs these 70s and 80s designs and I was just wondering how that kind of plays into some of your designs in terms of like components like maybe there's um. Because a lot of the things, you know, given as a print-on-demand uh, publisher, Helenspiel, like, I imagine a lot of, there's not a ton of games lying around, you know what I mean? Like, in, a, in, in the apartment or in the space, but there's probably no. components that are squirreled away places where it's like, a, oh, I've got, like, a ton of these cylinders or something, like, I need to get rid of all of them, <laughs> you know, or uh, oh, yeah, it's so, going to so, definitely so, be a cylinder game. <laughs> This, so this happened twice. So um, one of these stories is about table battles, which is our, our most popular title. Um, and how table battles came about is we published a game by Richard Byrd called Dynasty that had these little sticks for the Great Wall of China and the Great Grand Canal or whatnot. And in order, so the wood bits are the one are like one of the two things that we pay for ahead of time in bulk. Um, instead of as a print-on-demand thing, because we have an overseas supplier. And we ordered all these sticks in order to make it economical. We had ordered quite a few more sticks than we actually needed for this game. So it became a question, okay, what are we going to do with these sticks? So I designed table battles. And that turned out, okay. And I I told Richard this story before he had passed. And he said, uh, so does that mean I get a cut? (laughs) <laughs> Which was a very, very Richard Bird kind of thing to, yes. to say. And then uh, we have a game coming out this month, uh, which is our first block game. Um, so, you know, it's a hidden movement game with blocks. And how, why that exists is we bought a bunch of red and blue blocks for a game called Ribbit that Mark Herman designed and that we published. Um, and 
Ribbit didn't necessarily sell as many copies as either we or Mark would have wanted, but that, that was that was an abstract game that we mm-hmm. had trouble getting into that market. And those are very big blocks, and they're very heavy, and all the wood bits live in my bedroom. So um, I wanted them out of my room, so I designed a block game to get rid of them. Um, and hopefully, hopefully this, we're anticipating it doing well enough that I have now ordered more blocks that will go into my room. Doubling uh, down. I like it. Until, it's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that'll be easier once I'm in my own place, and then I will have a room for blocks. It is not a room a I need room. to sleep in. But sure. Block room. The block room. Uh, and this is for the Siege of Mantua game, correct? Um, yes, that's it. That looked sharp. You had a lot of cool... I, I think I watched a short video, and it had a lot of cool like little wrinkles or innovations on block games, which don't typically receive many innovations <laughs> i feel like I, you know there's a lot of <laughs> yeah <laughs> a lot of carryover from previous previous block games but that had some really neat things in terms of um deciding like unit strength could you talk a little bit about that system sure so um that's a game with a kind of a bifurcated structure where you are doing operational maneuver with blocks in order to try to get your opponent into a situation where you can have battle on terms that are favorable to you, and then you fight the battles off in a, a battle display, a little set-piece battle, um, and those are done with counters, and those counters are drawn randomly from a pool that you have of units with varying morale values. Um, higher morale is, is better, withstands stuff better. Um, and the strength of the blocks uh, isn't, like, a number of dice like in a lot of block games. Because mm-hmm. um, I really did want to move away from that A fires first, then Bs, then Cs, bucket of dice, roll to hit this number system that's in, like, every... Like, I didn't want to do another block game. Right? right. Um, I want to think what was cool about block games. The, the, the hidden maneuver stuff. The bluff and lean into that. Um, so the number on the block, the strength of the block, will put so many of these counters out on the battle display. And once you fight through the battle, which can inflict losses on the blocks, and is what you're trying to do. You're trying to get a decisive battle to eliminate uh, five blocks of your opponent to win the game. But uh, at the end of every battle, the winner is going to upgrade a certain number of the units in their pool. So the morale is going to improve for their army because they just won. Right. And then for every loss you've incurred, your morale is going to degrade because when you lose, you it sucks and you hate it. So yeah. <laughs> um, that that's going to be shifting in kind of a, a dynamic thing and, and can, you know, you can have, you keep losing battles over and over again. It gets harder to win the battles. Uh, and you keep winning battles, you know, you get in that habit of victory, then it's easier to keep doing it. Um, sure. And this is over the course of a game that should play in about an hour to 90 minutes, is is what has come out to in playtesting. Um, so a fairly quick game, but it's also, it's it it's covering the Arcole campaign, or Arcoli campaign, I can't pronounce Italian words. Um... <laughs> And that is a campaign that lasted like 15 days. So it's a, it's a 
it takes place over a short period of time. It's a very short game with a lot of that operational cat and mouse maneuver stuff, which I, 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 I love. Um, I think there are a lot of not mechanical similarities, but um, it has some of the same feeling as, as my Supply Lines games. Sure. It came out some years ago, like Supply Lines of the American Revolution and that. Uh, you have the kind of that, 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 that kind of chess-like maneuver aspect. Um, so I think people who enjoy those games will enjoy this one. And I, I think it's a pretty attractive package. And that's something where... Um, you know, I can point to pretty much everything in the game, every component, as being something that has improved over time of us of us publishing. Like, we print right on the blocks. There are no stickers. Sure. Uh, that's new. Uh, we have a deep two-inch box, which we worked with our, our uh, printer on last year for some of our games that have more stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the display sheet is on canvas, which is something that he worked with trying to figure out how to print on canvas effectively. So, working with him throughout these years, we've been able to create a production that I'm, I'm very proud of. And I I hope people like it. I like it when people like my games. <laughs> I, that, it's always a good feeling. It's also nice to know that you're delivering uh, something that's a take on a style of game that you know is popular. Like, you know that the, the block board game people just come out of the woodwork like ooh ooh did someone did someone mention blocks and then like just emerging from underneath the table or something like that I'm ready to play and so I always think that it's cool when someone's able to like design a game that's in that space but has some level of innovation with it they're adding like their own kind of unique spin on it and I I did get that sense a little bit of the supply lines thing cuz with supply lines I I enjoyed that there was you had this point-to-point map, but there were all these other layers of considerations in terms of how far I'm you know, venturing out, like when I want to press my luck, when I don't. Um, I'm a really poor judge of all of the things that I just mentioned, but I still I still enjoy those types of games like quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the Siege of Mantua game looked great, and I have noticed, too, as the production quality of like some of these components with Blue Panther have... like improved over time it really helps kind of solidify that feel of kind of the art house game space for esoteric Mm -hmm. titles you know Uh, honestly given given the titles that um you've designed amabel like everything from you know table battles but make it charles lorraine who's you know terrible uh what he does or even like uh dinosaur themed games or um you know uh even with some of the titles you released by other designers through helmspiel like uh, the new heading forward and meltwater and all kinds of things like that i was just kind of wondering what are some of the weirder designs that inspired your kind of design kind of creative outlook you know that's that's a hard question to answer because in a way the games that this sounds so pretentious the games that I design (laughs) are games that I don't see other people designing and the games that we publish are games that we don't see other people publishing it's not that it doesn't happen it's that we don't see it as often. I'm. I think I'm more likely to take like personal inspiration from other 
forms of expression and other forms of sure like i'm i'm like i'm very much a movie nerd (laughs) right and i like very peculiar films and very idiosyncratic films i mean i made films for a while um badly but i made them and (laughs) they always were um very particular and peculiar and uh which is why they didn't really resonate really the thing that's amazing to me is that i can do weird stuff in the board game form and it seems to resonate with people which i'm still not i'm still not used to that um (laughs) so maybe maybe i I should reframe that question then like more as like a uh, is there a particular, um, you know, as, as a cinema buff and a former filmmaker, uh, what is a non-Lego film that you derived inspiration from for one of your games? Um, let's see. That, that's a very good question. I'm not sure if I have an answer off the top of my head because it's I, it's hard to draw a one to one from oh this thing inspired that game. It's it's more like I am attracted to odd sensibilities and yeah. it's encouraged me to have an odd sensibility. You know. Um, I know I've seen it in, like, little elements. Like, this is going to sound kind of silly, but with even just, like, box covers for some of your games. Like, when I look at West Westphalia, oh, yes. it's just, like, very upfront. Like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm holding, you know, like like a film, like, like a DVD case for some, you know, some movie that I'm, like, nerding out about or something like that. It's just, like, there's a certain so, aesthetic so- and presentation. That that definitely is the case. So I would say two big influences on on the packaging of 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 what we do uh, at 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 its best. Because not not I'll say not every box cover I do knocks it out of the park. Because we we release a lot of games, and I, with very few exceptions, I do all the box covers. Um, but. I'm massively influenced by the work of Saul Bass and other graphic designers like him, other, other poster designers. I, I find that kind of poster design and the use of flat color to be very striking. Um, and I think that is very evident in, in some of my box covers especially. Uh, I want to have a really strong image and a, a really strong emphasis on the 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 text as an element, the, the, the font typeface as an element of the design. Um, and then the other big influence um, and why we have the uh, little hex number on the side of the spine so that people say, oh, I'm missing number eight. I better go buy number eight. Um, is uh, places like the Criterion Collection. Sure. Because um, I was definitely that kind of a film nerd. Um and really that kind of approach that uh, Criterion and some other DVD labels have of treating the movies as, as an altruist thing, as not 
not always necessarily director oriented, though often that way, where you're presenting this this particular vision of these particular creative people, um, and that's kind of what we want to do. We want to be a, a designer's label where where mm-hmm. that vision and and the particularness of that vision is important, um, and that's something that we try to emphasize and try to respect you know um we we try to give our designers final cut as it were there i mean certainly there are cases where we're working on a game where this thing isn't quite working so we work with the designer to find a solution generally we're not going to sign a game until we're pretty sure it's where it needs to be in the first place sure but there have been some games where we've went through lengthy development and playtesting periods um to try to just present the game and the designer's vision as as best as possible, support it as best as possible, um, and to do it with some care. Um, and that's basically been our, our approach, um, is that. I'm not sure if that answers the, the I, question I, or if it's just me I think rambling, it, but no, way, no, I, the answer you get. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I, I thought I, I think that's pretty evident in terms of like that approach to treating uh, you know each designer as kind of an auteur for their vision and everything lends itself really well to games that are oriented a little bit more about it centers on the player experience. Like not that the player will have fun, <laughs> which I put in air quotes. <laughs> not that a player will have fun, but more like I want the player to think about this. You know what I mean? Like, either the statement that the game is mm-hmm. making or just really kind of engage and immerse themselves with the subject matter of the game in on the terms that the designer has sort of laid out within that kind of framework. And I think that film is very much like a... I'm just going to provoke you in this little space. I, I seat you in this space, then I'm just going to provoke you with these images and this presentation, mm-hmm. everything from the music to how it's edited. Like, all of the stuff is just going to be kind of... You know, I mean, like needling you in this little way or trying to get you, you know, sometimes engaged in the ways you want to be engaged in a game and sometimes engaged with the friction that I've put in there that is totally intentional and I have no willingness to remove. And you do those things in kind of equal measure. But I think that 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 tour type of approach, like definitely sets a different expectation for players rather than the, um, you know, all these minis came stuck together or my Kickstarter box was dented and now I'm going to give this a one even though, or, you know, even rating things that they've never played. Like, It's sort of more satisfying, I feel like, to see someone uh, perturbed with what you gave them as a design <laughs> and give you the two, even though yes. you, you know you you said what you wanted to say and you basically presented the game exactly as you wanted to present it and they that's the issue like that's what what the grievance is <laughs> yeah, and no, yeah there's like a, i don't know like a secret like you're just putting your grinding your palms together like yeah that's that's kind of what i wanted and it's certainly nice Amabel, when they like the game don't get me wrong it's not like necessarily like a super contrarian thing but um not just because it's play doesn't mean people can't be unsettled i think during the experience right and so I, I think it's better for people to be unsettled. I, I, I don't mean that like 
every game you play should change your worldview because that's that's not <laughs> right. what I'm saying. But um, but there needs to be more games that it can unsettle. They'll stick in your craw a bit and will um, leave you with contradictory feelings, complicated feelings. Because I I think that's something that that art in general can do very well. Um, I don't feel like art is necessarily good for making points or making statements. Now, I've made games that are very didactic and that start with a, a, a thesis and with making a point, making an argument. But within that argument, there still is room for to be unsettled and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and for nuance, for things that are just a little... Like you have to kind of sort it out yourself, and there might not be a way to sort it out, and you just need to kind of sit with that a bit. And yeah, that's certainly something that that I try to lean into when I'm doing, especially the the kind of heavier games about like systems of political oppression uh, and and the the complicity of the middle and et cetera, et cetera. Which I, I've done games on that, and I will do games on that in the future. I'm not doing that right now. Because, um, so a fun thing is that when I went through puberty the first time, I didn't quite get it right, so I'm doing it again. I'm speedrunning it. Sure. Um, and I have, like, the emotional bandwidth and, and mental bandwidth of a teenager, so I'm not doing heavy, <laughs> depressing games right now. I'm, I'm setting that aside for, for a little while. <laughs> You know, but I, I will get back to those uh, eventually because those are certainly the games that I think that have um, been a big part of our company's success and more generally my increased profile as a designer, which has mm-hmm. helped with our company's success. Which is sure. really funny because when we started the company, uh, I figured, well, we're going to do a bunch of normal games and those will make money and then they'll allow us to publish my, my, my weird nonsense. The normal games did not make money. The weird nonsense did. It took a while to switch those gears and just lean into the weirdness. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really gratifying, but also really... I am still not used to the idea that the work that I'm doing is primarily responsible for, like, the company's well-being. That's something that's that doesn't sit so well with. It's, it's a responsibility. I don't want responsibility right now. It it seems you know? daunting for sure. Like I could see that 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 would be. It's probably difficult to design without that. In, in sort of the forefront of your kind of mental state, like when, when you're picking the next project you want to like lean into and work, work on, like a, it's, I'm sure there's some compartmentalization, like for all artists, there's always a little bit of a thing like where, well, this can't touch this, like this is my serious one and this is, you know, dinosaurs and race cars, whatever, mm-hmm. kaiju dating simulator, whatever thing you're working on, like you've got your separate oh, that's, that's buckets. A good one. Um, but I think mm-hmm. you can have that. Uh, <laughs> but you um, you have this mentality sometimes, I'm sure, of like, well, this is going to be like may, maybe something we release closer to the holiday sale, and this is going to be uh, like a game I'm going to do in the middle of June because it's weird, and that's when I feel like doing little little June weird things. You know what I mean? Or that that oh, really 
probably necessary mental break between like a, a votes from you know like a, a vote the vote game and like um, this guilty land like you, if you're just doing these serious topics all the time I feel like it would just ring you out like not even as a designer oh, just as a am- person oh absolutely because for each of those games I, I need to like immerse myself in that period and in primary sources for like a year and a half and it is exhausting um incredibly exhausting and yeah we do like the last game we release every year which is concurrent with with our sale is always intended to be like the big game for the year Hmm. um and so that's that's going to usually be the the important game you know the like uh, last year we had nicaea that was the important game, and then we had the vote the year before that. Uh, this year, we don't... Because I'm having that little bit of a break, uh, we don't have uh, the important game. We have a game about dinosaurs running train companies, which um, <laughs> train games also sell well. You know, they also mm-hmm. can fit that, 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 that niche, I guess. So we'll see how that goes. Um, next year, possibly, possibly... Uh, I'll finally be doing my game about disinformation in the tobacco industry. Um, I've certainly, I've done a lot of research on that, and it's something that certainly I have a lot of like personal feelings about. Um, mm-hmm. My uh, my father died of lung cancer when he was thirty eight. I was eighteen, um, and I'm yeah. So I I, I have. St- I'm looking forward to doing that game, and I might maybe that'll be next year, maybe the year after. I don't know. Like right now, I'm I'm still kind of like I'm trying to do fun, weird things, and I'm trying to do more queer things because I don't think there's enough mm-hmm. there's not, not enough queerness in games. Definitely and not. I want to lean into that as much as I can. You know, you and, grow up with more um, that kind of media that has to be coded versus now where it's just like you kind of want more mm-hmm. like upfront queer themes, like in work whether it's games film like whatever so no, i think there's definitely like yeah absolutely spaces wide open for it i mean i don't know what publishers want but i, I never know what publishers want in general so <laughs> just gotta keep that uneven keel doesn't really matter you just I design mean, what you design and then you you bring I mean, it neither, there because I, I i yeah <laughs> yeah exactly no, i i I, ha- I have that that freedom you know which which is is really uh invigorating and I really want to I feel like when you have the kind of freedom I do creatively in in this you know capitalist hellscape you <laughs> there's kind of a responsibility to use it mm-hmm. and as I've gotten more as I've understood my queerness better and gotten more confident in its expression, I definitely feel the need to try to express it in games, including, like, through, like, representation, uh, which is one reason why i am kind of been leaning more towards some um, science fiction sort of games, which give me more freedom. Um, because it te- the, the kind of historical games I tend to do are on a more systemic rather than personal level. And right. so it is a bit more difficult for me, right? 
um, to do anything but like color in the margins, as it were. And I want something that's more more overtly queer. Like I'm, I am working on this game. Um, I am working on on a, a I'm describing it as a candy colored dystopian racing game about like a trans femme biker gang. Uh, Go, going on the, this huge... Cr- Think of it as, like, a Mad Max or Death Race 2000 kind of thing. All right, I'm on board. And, um... <laughs> okay. Um, and they, 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 they're they not just running away from something, and they are running away from, like, the bad guys who are chasing them, who I am calling the chasers, because that's the kind of humor that appeals to me. <laughs> so so these trans girls are running away from the chasers. But they're also running towards something, which I'm still kind of figuring out, but it definitely, I feel I, I want to be an expression of queerness as, like, there's there's that phrase, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure um, how PG-13 this, this podcast is. No, but, you go for uh, it. I'm going to swear I, anyway. Do it. But th- th- there's this phrase, you know, um, uh, you know, not gay as in happy, queer as in fuck you. Mm-hmm. And I want more of that energy, right? And um, and, and the thing about the, uh, this racing game is, I mean, I, I want to make... Like, I want, I, would, I would want everyone to buy the game, of course. Everyone, right. should, everyone should buy my games all the time. Uh, but I'm not making the game for cis people or straight people where they can get into the game and like, oh, there's this good representation of whatever. You know, I, I'm not into like respectability nonsense. Um, I'm, I want to make a game that's f- in a way f- primarily for trans people mm-hmm. um, and has that energy. So like I am putting freaking trans femme culture in in the thing. Um, here, here's the best part. So, um, the the motorcycles that they're riding, you have trouble getting the engine started. There's a lot of stops and starts. And the game is called Gridlock. And if you're if you're a trans woman, you're probably laughing right now. And if you're not, you're probably not. And that's fine. That's fine. I, I, I don't mind other people not being in on my hilarious joke. <laughs> so... And that, that's a real thing I'm working on, and maybe that'll be out next year. Maybe it won't, because that will need art. That will need uh, art that I can't do, because usually I do the art because um, I don't have to pay anyone. Right. Right. If I if I, if I if I'm doing the counter illustrations, if I'm we pay for the maps, but you know that saves a lot. When we do a game with a more science fiction kind of theme or a dinosaur theme, we need to pay for that art, and it's usually quite expensive um, compared to our other games. And this would be something that would have quite a bit of art. It'd be very expensive in that way. And there's a possibility that it would, like, lose money. And I'm okay with that. I don't care. If I if I was doing this just to make money, like, there are easier ways to make money than to make weird niche board games print-on-demand that you have to, you know, buy through our website only. Um, so, I mean... 
I, I would be doing games with a lot broader appeal if I cared about the money. You know, I, I, money's useful. To, it lets you do things, and it lets me do what the heck I want. Then I, you know, I want to do it. I think that's the main thing that some folks, you know, it takes a it takes a while to kind of come around and understand for some folks, and other people understand right away that like if you just aren't concerned with how how many of your copies, like how many of your games, like how many units you're doing or whatever, if you're willing to just not be concerned with that and just kind of immerse yourself in the subject matter regardless of whether or not even if the game might not even be published but just like the making of it and making your game the way you want like I think if you can embrace that you can just get in a better design flow in general and like you have like a healthier perspective of kind of the art you're making you treat this as like this is this weird folk art thing I made in the back room and I'm totally cool with it just being my thing and sometimes your audience that you're imagining for your games is just a younger version of yourself and that I wouldn't want to do that all the time but every once in a while I think it's kind of good to have a project where you kind of address those things you know you're talking about like how as being you know both having the publisher hat and the designer hat you don't have the same constraints but then when we're talking about stuff like this game would really benefit from having, you know, illustration, you know, like more artwork, like this would be nice to have the time to spend on this game versus, you know, your your clip of what you make, like what you design for Helmspiel is like super impressive. I mean, you've had like, what, 60 games total, something like that, probably more than that. Yeah, and about 30 of them have come out through Helmspiel. I'll need to be alive 130 years to get anything close <laughs> close to that. It's going to be a big undertaking. Um, but yeah, that's more the constraint you're probably viewing Like when you're creating games. You're still designing within a constraint, but that constraint is more like these are, this is what we can present. Like This is what we have the ability to make well. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I was kind of curious. I've noticed you've done a fair number of solitaire games a lot of two-player games is there is that the types of games that you prefer like to make for that kind of player count uh or is it more of a constraint in terms of play testing and what's more manageable certainly there's a constraint with play test easier to play test a two-player game than one for three plus certainly um you know i've done games for three or more players. I've done games for exactly six players, in fact. <laughs> but uh, they are harder to play test, and to a degree is also a function of the, the types. So I feel like the questions you're grappling with in a, in a solitaire game are fundamentally different than those in a two-player game, and fundamentally different than those in a three-plus game. Which is why uh, I don't do games that are like two to five or one to five. They're, uh -huh. they're, they're, they're very separate, distinct entities for me. Um, and be so I kind of fell into doing the historical games because when I started, I'm pretty, pretty sure I was doing like midweight Euro games and they just never picked up traction. And I did a war game as a lark and it did. It was published, so I did another one, and I kind of just fell into that. I kind of also fell into doing the train games for basically the same reason. 
um, which is why I do a lot of war games, which tend to be two-player games, at least the types of games that I do, which are very like directly competitive head-to-head -head stuff. Um, certainly there are war games for more players, uh, stuff like uh, the coin series and stuff like that, where it's more uh, interfactional stuff, which is very interesting, but um, isn't the thing I get into as much. Um, and then I do train games, which usually sit three to five. Um, and then, yeah, I've done three solitaire games uh, thus far. And I probably will do... I mean, I'm working on another one, which is about um, Shackleton's expedition um, to Antarctica, the famous uh, endurance uh, debacle, um, which I, I, I'm working on for years. I'll, I will get it done eventually. And just... Um, that, that's a depressing subject matter. Sure. There, there, are, there are a lot of, like... Because... Yeah, they survived against these terrible odds, but, like, they made the odds worse than they needed to. They The, the lack of foresight, the lack of good decisions, it, it just... It's just constant suffering and misery, and that's really hard to sit with for a long period of time. As, a, as someone who's doing research, as someone who's designing something. Mm -hmm. So that's why that one's been taking a while to, to put together. Do you have a lot of whale games? That's what I was referring to, like, just the big one that's hanging out that I work a little bit on each year, but never feel like I'm ever going to get done with. <laughs> um, I don't think I have a lot of those. I mean... There are games that have a long uh, gestation period. Um, West Folly is a good example, actually, because I can look at like where that started, and that was about a ten-year process. Mm. Now, wasn't I wasn't like actively banging my head against that wall all ten of those years, but um, like I, I I can trace back to that point. Um, Usually, things have a much shorter uh, period where maybe it might take a couple years to get something where I want it to be. And sometimes it's, it's very quick. Like, um, 2020, we released the game Field of the Cloth of Gold um, mm -hmm. to coincide with the anniversary, the 500th anniversary of Field of the Cloth. And that was about a month. So I came up with the idea in February, and I was like, okay, if we want this out in June, I need to be done by the end of the month. And so, so I mean, and it, it, we did that. We did that, and it worked. Um, Islet also had a very quick uh, development period. Uh, the only reason why it came out a little later than, like, you know, immediately is waiting on the shoelaces <laughs> to arrive. Very practical. <laughs> and having to tie them. Um, sure. Yeah. It's interesting because for some of these historical games, um, there's a central argument to be made that could be, you know, for example, like with um, this guilty land about the nature of compromise, like political compromise, and kind of the role it plays in a saga like that. And then other games have more of a space where your central argument is more more about like maybe um, thematic mechanisms like how the game plays and how it presents the history in that way. Um, but do you feel like 
your historical games all need to make an argument. Whether I intend them to or not, they all will make an argument, whether that's by, you know, omission or, or on purpose, so I better do it on purpose. Um, I mean, certainly some games I'm... Not all arguments are created equal, you know. Mm -hmm. um, if I do a game on something like this guilty land where I'm, I'm making arguments about the systemic nature of oppression is a very heavy thing. If I'm doing a game on the Battle of Agincourt, it's my argument is about like longbows and drunken Frenchmen. So I mean it's not it's not the same kind of you know it you're not necessarily engaging with it on the same level. It it is definitely more like uh, well let's see how this happened and experience that rather than, you know, what's actually hit. Because I don't know if I have something to, to say about the battle of X, Y, or Z mm -hmm. other than here's some cool stuff that happened uh -huh. and these factors were important in how this battle was decided, um, which is valid and fine. And, I mean, I've done it and I enjoy those games. But, you know, I, I don't feel the same... Uh, onus or responsibility with those that I do with a game that's uh, certainly a game that's more about like political history as it were mm -hmm. um, is I, I, I feel like a any game on that topic um, you know you need to approach it very carefully and very thoughtfully um and not cavalierly, um, because you know it, it. It is uh, true that you don't know the things that you don't know, and um, you can have blind spots. And I think sometimes when some people take on like you know these big topics, they're not fully aware of their blind spots, and you know. Bless them for that. I, I can't imagine going through life like not constantly doubting everything. <laughs> so, you know, that that sounds like more fun than what I've had to go through. Um, I I imagine like the games that have a central argument that are you know, tied to something political or even something just more of a modern conflict too or modern consideration. Um, they. Like, I would imagine they probably coalesce a little bit slower just because there's a there's a careful preparation of what you're putting forward versus the, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm doing something on the Battle of the Virginia Capes or something. It's just like, yeah, wouldn't shooting at each other on a boat suck? Like, this, I mean, it's not like a profound statement or, you know, man, these conflicting, you know, signals, like, man, that, that was... That was a shit show, wasn't it? Like, that's not really, like, a profound argument, per se, <laughs> but I still like to put players yeah. on that little journey for, you know, like, a couple hours at a time. Yeah. I think um, when I played This Guilty Land, it was interesting because there was, there's, like, some mechanical aspects of that game that I feel like are also really reinforcing the argument in terms of, like, how, how events get offered in a way that's a little bit different from how you would see them presented in a lot of CDGs, uh, not just in their openness, but the pain 
that the, ex- the, the excruciating pain that you have to undergo to trigger certain event effects, which I thought was a really nice touch. It's like, are CDGs something yeah, you normally the, the, even play, or is like that something like you just kind of had thought about in terms like just within the kind of silo of your own design? So I, I, I have played CDGs, and there's some I like uh, tremendously. Um, I was very impressed with uh, Unhappy King Charles and with uh, some of Mark Herman's CDGs, Telling Struggles Good. Um, I played this this game at uh, Constant World Expo some years ago uh, called No Motherland Without. I thought that was pretty good. Um, but, uh, you know, I definitely want to do something different. I mean, and technically, you could call this Guilty Land a card-driven game, and it is driven by cards, but it doesn't function like any other kind of card-driven game. Um, and, yeah, I was trying mechanically kind of to... Re- because the, the way the cards come out is... It's clunky and slow, and it's hard to manipulate it. To, to, it's frustrating, and it's meant mm-hmm. to be frustrating on a mechanical level, because part of what the game is presenting is this this stagnation, this legislature that will not do anything, that is built to not do anything. I just got myself mad about, about today's events, <laughs> uh, today's world, so, you know, sure. that's, that's good for me. Um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And, you know, and that, that was some, something, um, you know, with, with this guilty land, uh, and to a larger degree with with the vote um i know there was some handful of people online who were like accusing it of like presentism and and you know this is really about today and not about then and like it's about both because in any any game that engages with anything that engages with history is about both the the time in which it happened and the time in which you are looking at it absolutely and i and i feel like there are definitely echoes of the past that are that are present in the here and now, uh, and I think that was particularly true with with this guilty land and with the vote. Um, and yet, explicitly, uh, I am making arguments not just about this particular historical event, but about the way a society functions or doesn't function in general, and the way. Uh, struggles for civil rights and like basic humanity have always functioned and maybe always will function and god that's depressing <laughs> um, you know because at the heart of the vote um, because the thing with the vote is that it it it's kind of two games in parallel because you have the player who is working towards um, women's voting rights and then you have the player working against that who is also simultaneously working to create the infrastructure of Jim Crow. And the the good guy side uh, is not interacting with that at all because one of the fundamental tragedies of the 19th Amendment is that it was passed... It was passed basically to secure the voting rights of white women at the expense of others. And 
um, they particularly abandoned black women and black voters generally who the, the, the women's suffrage movement came out of the abolitionist movement and early arguments uh, before the Civil War were about whether or not these were the same movements. So it's so like it's so frustrating and and sad and enraging that you know in in order to secure privileges with, for a small group within this this structure of patriarchy and white supremacy they they sold out the group underneath them and boy that's something that's relevant to me right now uh, and so like the argument the vote is making is an argument about the need for intersectionality and about how these forms of oppression are interlinked and interlocked and it is one struggle when when I got myself uh, fired well, up I, there I'm sorry. glad I didn't piss yeah, you I off just, with just, like one of my questions <laughs> no it's i it it speaks to how much um you know, the interest that a designer has to take on certain topics is through the lens of the present, I think, often. It's a little odd if it was just like, um, I'm really interested in this, you know, model of tank or aircraft or whatever. I mean, those folks, God bless them, I, I'm not one of them. I don't know anything about that from, like, you know, a Buick Skylark. Like, to me, it's all machines, and I shouldn't be driving any of them, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I think like when you're looking at something like, you know, like when I, I did design on, um, the coup in Iran, uh, in 53, kind of falling to the Islamic revolution and the whole impetus for like kind of picking up that design was different than any kind of modern concern. It was more that the coup was a blueprint for all kinds of shenanigans throughout, which is putting it pretty lightly. I apologize uh, for throughout Latin America and whatnot. But at the same time, I, couldn't help as I'm like on the home stretch of finishing this game, you know, I'm just thinking about how fragile democracies are in general as we're heading into, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the 2020 election is just like, well, like shit, it's impossible to not think about the present when you're addressing, you know, the past, like, and I can't imagine that someone would play it and be so dense that they wouldn't understand <laughs> why these things connect or why anyone would care about them or, you know, in terms of the statement, you're trying to present, uh, you know, an objective kind of, you know, full plate of what the events are of this period and what the motivations were of the various, you know, um, parties involved. But I think that the idea that the game should just be about the past and not say anything about the present is just sort of imbecilic and, like, impossible. Like, it's just impossible anyway, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. with... You know, with with this guilty land, I started the rule book with slavery was bad, and I shouldn't have had to say that, but it was important to me that there would be no misinterpretation of what I was saying, or you know that it couldn't be misread. But people will willfully misread things because I have had people talk about how how the, the game shows the dangers of of partisanship and radicalization and like if that's what you got from that game 
I don't know what's wrong with you. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how you can get that out of the, that game. But I mean, people can. People, I don't know. You know, and and I would say the reception for the game was, uh, I think, on the whole, largely very positive. Which you know, I. I'm I'm fortunate in, in that, and people seem to understand what I was attempting, and whether or not they felt that I accomplished it or not is not a question. But um, people seem to meet it in good faith generally, uh, which is something I was very worried about given the subject matter. We were very careful, like right from the outset, to be very loudly saying, "This is what the game is. This is what it isn't." because we wanted to kind of control that narrative and prevent someone else from controlling it for us. Sure. And I've certainly seen games with sensitive subject matter where the publisher didn't um, really address these concerns ahead of time and thought when people brought them up, but we'll just ignore them and maybe they'll go away. And that just that just... That doesn't work. That just makes it Bastard. worse. Yes. How how can you not see that makes it worse? <laughs> um. I do think it's it's fascinating, like how I think it's wild to think about how a publisher approaches like some of the titles that come to them, especially for like Hollenspiel. You're getting you're a magnet for weird designs for people who want to make shitty states of siege games and send them to you for some reason, and then folks who've got their historic games that are probably about like um, you know niche history, but they're like, well, yeah, that'll be fine for print and demand. Like we'll we'll be able to like make this this little game, but I think it's probably tough to like you know when someone approaches you with a design, sometimes they probably think they've got the weird one or the hard-to-publish thing, and then you're sitting there across the table, or you and Mary are like, it's kind of normie, actually. Like, it's a little, it's a little yeah. like something somebody yeah. else would do. Not, not, not too weird. Like, medium weird, maybe. We've gotten, we've gotten a lot of games that are, yeah, they think they're on, onto some kind of really weird, ultra kind of thing, and it, it is profoundly normal. Uh, mostly what we, what we get uh, we tend to get a lot of submissions from people who don't seem to have ever encountered one of our games before. Hmm. So there'll be way too many components, or it'll just be like very run the mill hex encounter stuff. Get a lot of station siege stuff, despite having it on the website that I don't I don't want to see those. Um. And we get, every once in a while, we get, like, a lightweight Euro cube conversion game for some reason. I think the reason is they have a list of publishers started with the A's and worked their way down to the H. <laughs> you know? And and, and they're, they're... Like, a, a big part of when we're looking at design... It isn't so much about, like, is this design right for us, but are we right for this design? Mm-hmm. I mean, both things need to be true. Because if a designer wants... To, there are a lot of games that a larger publisher is going to do a better job finding a, a market for and getting attention for. 
and a designer needs to know that going into working with us and we try to foreground that with them and just you know to see what kind of feeling we have about the game and if we're feeling it and, and we have that like okay we need to do this then we'll do it and if we don't then we won't even if we don't have an explanation and sometimes a you know a, a designer first second time designer and they're submitting their game and they they want to know why like what what can they fix that would make you give a different answer and you know i let go of the need to have a why and just to say for mary and i to say like it just it's not clicking mm -hmm. you know and that's that's all there is to it um and there have been games that like we didn't click with and like this isn't really something we were gonna do they have then gone on to a larger publisher and they've done very well and you know i'm really glad for them and it's not that like oh we pass them over and we should regret that it just it didn't feel right for us and what we were able to do and deliver i, I think of it sometimes um so there's the criterion collection like uh pretension of like where the auteurist label and you know the the great designers can come and design games for us and etc but there's also um there's also kind of like the roger corman impulse or something something roger corman uh said to more than one director is uh who he gave their opportunity to direct their first film is uh, if you do this right you won't have to work for me again and so having a first-time designer have their game come through us and then they're able to move on to a larger publisher that sounds great i'm happy and they want to keep working with us that sounds great too i'm happy in both those situations our thanks to amabel island i'm dan bullock outro music provided by the scarring party and you can find their music on bandcamp Church in the wild. We built a church in the wild. We built our church in the wild.